Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. I'd like to bring a message this morning from this passage in Genesis 29 and also chapter 30 uh, about the deceiver meets a deceiver. The deceiver meets a deceiver. Genesis 29, following your Bibles as I read. Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the, e- of the people of the east. And he looked and behold a well in the field, and lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well that they watered their flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Havaran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well, and behold, Rachel his daughter cometh with the sheep. And he said, Lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time for that the cattle should be gathered together. Water the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot until the flocks be gathered together. And they roll the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her, with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, Laban his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass, when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said unto him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my my brethren, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than than I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week. And we will give this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me seven other years. And Jacob did so and fulfilled his week, and he he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. 
And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction, now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again, and bare a son, and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again, and bare a son, and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, uh, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again, and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and left bearing. Now in the message we're going to deal with uh, chapter 30 all the way through verse 24, but we'll not read it at this time. We'll refer to it later. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the privilege to be here. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us health and strength to enable us to be here. And we know that through these last several months, COVID has, has uh, brought some uh, undesirable things to people's lives. And Lord, it's affected attendance and all of that. But we thank you, Lord, that it has not taken away our joy at this church. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you might meet with us who are here today and use your word to speak to our hearts and teach us lessons that we need to learn. Uh, Lord, I just ask you to give enablement to bring the message. And if someone is here who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior, I pray today would be the day of faith for them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Jacob received his name because of an unusual circumstance at his birth. You remember, he was a twin. His twin brother Esau was born first, and immediately after that, they found that, es- that Jacob was holding on to the heel of Esau as he came out of the womb. Thus, his name Jacob. And the name Jacob means heel catcher or supplanter or a trickster. He lived up to his name, as we saw in chapter 27, when he tricked his father by disguising to be Esau and thus receiving Isaac's blessing by deception. In the passage we read this morning, we see that the deceiver meets a deceiver. The deceiver that he met was his uncle Laban the brother of Jacob's mother, Rebekah. As you remember, Rebekah played a major role in Jacob's deception of his father, Isaac. So in a sense, there was a great similarities between Rebekah and her brother, Laban. Now let's examine the story this morning. And as we do, or after we do, we'll look at some lessons that we can draw from the story. The story goes, as we've read this morning, that Jacob arrived at his destination, and that is he had been on a trip that's almost 500 miles from Beersheba to his destination in the east where his, his ancestors were. And so he arrived in the ancestors' land. It probably took him several weeks riding either a donkey or a camel. And then he comes upon a scene, and there's this well, and around this well are three separate flocks of sheep, and with their shepherds there with the sheep, but they're not watering the sheep. Jacob asked 
where these shepherds were from, and they said from Haran. Well, that's where Jacob was headed. That's where he wanted to go. So he'd gotten to his destination. And he said, uh, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And then they said, he said this, he said, is, is he well? You know, it's what you'd normally ask somebody if you were uh, checking on a relative. And he said, is he well? And they said, oh, yes, he's well. And not only that, but his daughter, Rachel, is coming right now with his sheep. And so he looks, and here comes Rachel. And it's, it's interesting because in verse 7 and 8, it says that, that uh, Jacob said, why don't you men water your flocks and go feed them? In other words, water your flocks and go shepherd them. You wonder, why would Jacob say that? Well, he said that, I believe, because he wanted them out of the way. I mean, he'd been going for weeks on a trip to find a wife at, in Iran at Laban's house, and he's there, and here comes his daughter. And he thinks, I mean, he's excited. Now, remember from previous messages, we explained that Jacob is probably 75 years old. That might take you by surprise, but back then they lived a lot longer. And Jacob's probably, scholars have figured out, probably around 75 years old. And so he's never married. His brother's married. Esau's married, but he's never married. And he's traveled all this way to find a wife. And here the prospective wife comes and he says, Would you men get out of here? <laughs> I, want you, I want to be alone. And so, but while she's coming... Uh, she comes while he's talking to them, and they tell him, no, we can't do that, because the custom here is everybody's flocks come, and then somebody rolls that huge stone away from the well, and everybody's flocks are watered. Well, Jacob saw Rachel, and she came. He looked at her, and no doubt he noticed, as any man would, that she was beautiful. And so he began to think what he was going to do. And so he rolled back the stone himself. Now, these, young, these shepherds were with the other flocks, were probably young men, probably young shepherds. And here this grown man who's a strong man, he has come and he rolls the stone away all by himself, probably to impress Rachel and also to give her, her uh, sheep some water to drink. And then he kisses Rachel. Now, this isn't the romantic-type kiss that sometimes uh, you, you see on movies and all of that, or you uh, kiss your wife. It's not that. It's a kiss of friendship of a relative. So he kisses Rachel, and this, then this grown man, grown man weeps. Now, I can imagine why he would. I mean, you haven't been married, and you're looking for a wife, and you've come all this distance to find one, and here's the one who seems to meet the requirements, and she's beautiful, and, and he weeps. I mean, is God going to answer prayer this much, and this in, in such a great way? And there he is weeping before Rachel. And then the Bible tells us that Jacob told her that he was Rebekah's son, his father's brother, which means, which in those days that term brother would, meant a relative, so it was his nephew. And then she ran and told Laban. I imagine what happened was that Jacob said, you go tell your, your, your dad, my uncle, and I'll keep your sheep. So he probably kept the sheep, and here comes Laban after Rachel went and told him. Here comes Laban, Laban to meet this relative that he's never met. 
and they've been gone a long time, his sister has. And uh, he says, come home with me. So he does, and he takes him home, and, and he stays there a month. And after a month, Laban asked Jacob, he said, uh, you know, it's not right for you to serve me because he's been helping him take care of the sheep and everything. It's not right for you to serve me without any pay. So what will your wages be? You know, isn't that interesting that Jacob, wanting not to serve but to other people to serve him, tricked his dad, you remember, to get the blessing, and now he goes to Laban's house and, feel, and finds out the first thing Laban wants to do is for him to serve him. And, and he's willing to do it, of course. And so he answers he's, when he says, what's your wages? The Bible describes that Laban has two daughters. One's Leah, the older, and one is Rachel, the younger. It's described Leah in this way, that she's the oldest one and she's tender-eyed. Now, what does it mean that she's tender-eyed? Well, in that, in that day, in that culture and everything, there was great value put to the luster of a woman's eyes. The same is true today. You might comment on somebody and say, well, they have beautiful eyes. Well, that was true of um, Rachel, but it wasn't true of Leah. She was tender-eyed, it says. But then it says of Rachel, she was beautiful and she was well-favored. I mean, she was beautiful lady. Everything about her was beautiful. And so that doesn't mean that Leah was ugly. It was just a problem with Leah's eyes. They weren't as lustrous as, as Rachel. But Rachel was just a beautiful lady. Well, Jacob says this, I will serve you seven years. Now, remember, Jacob came up with this, not Laban. And uh, men, I ask you, you don't have to answer, especially if your wife's sitting next to you. <laughs> Would you serve somebody seven years for your prospective wife? I mean, not, not a wife you're going to get and then promise seven years, but seven years before you ever get this wife and before you ever know her intimately or anything like that. Would you serve seven years? Don't answer that, <laughs> except in your mind. <laughs> but... Uh, Jacob did. He said, she is so pretty, I will serve you seven years. Now, remember, he's been with them a month, and he's not only noticed her beauty, but he's also probably noticed her character. And you know, character means a whole lot. And he probably observed that she was really a, a good lady. And so he wanted, he wanted Rachel. And he says, seven years, I will serve you. So Laban agrees. And the Bible says in verse 20 that Jacob served seven years and they seemed to him, because he loved Rachel so much, they seemed to him but a few days. I mean, it was, she was worth it. And so he just knew that she was going to be his wife and so he labored seven years. And then at the end of the seven years, he says to Laban, now give me my wife and uh, that I may go in unto her, that she might become my wife that uh, we might have intimate relations and all of that, she says, he says, let me have my wife. And so the custom was on the wedding day, they had a big feast. So Laban made a big feast. He made a feast for all the people, the men there and everything. They had a great feast. And then at the end of the feast, it was dark, it was night. And so instead of bringing Rachel, he brought Leah. Now I imagine that Leah... Of course, she had to be party to this. 
she probably had to do in that culture what her dad told her to do, but she was probably in agreement with it. Because remember, she wasn't married. She wanted to be married. And here's this good-looking guy who was very industrious. He was a hard worker. You could tell that. She had been around him for a month. And for him to be my husband, she said, yes, I'll go along with that. And so Laban deceives uh, Jacob, and he gives to him Leah. Now, you might wonder, this doesn't make sense. How in the world could he deceive him and him not find out to the next morning? Well, I can't explain it all, but I know that the custom was back then that the, the, the lady wore a veil. I imagine that Leah, because she was participant in all this, entered in on the deception as well. Maybe she used some of uh, Rachel's clothing. Maybe she used some of Rachel's perfume. Maybe she talked in hushed tones and whispering voice, and she knew what Rachel sounded like, and she probably was in on the deception and did all that she could. And so they spent the night together, and uh, the next morning when it was daylight, he discovered it's not Rachel, it's Leah. And he's upset. And he goes to uh, Laban, and uh, he says to Laban, why have you beguiled me? Now, don't you imagine in the back of his mind, he was thinking, I did the same thing. I deceived, now I am being deceived. The deceiver had been deceived. And he says, why have you beguiled me? Well, Laban's answer was this. Well, in our country, we have a custom. And that is, it's not right to give away the younger daughter before you give away the older daughter. So I gave you the older daughter, and, uh, but don't be too upset with me because uh, you finish her week, and that meant a week of celebration. They got married, and there was a week of celebration. You finish her week of celebration as, as your wife, and then I will give you Rachel. And then you can go into her that same day after the seven days. You can go into her, and she can be your wife as well, and you'll have two wives. But you have to serve me seven more years for Rachel. Well, he was, he was really a deceiver, wasn't he? So you served me seven more years uh, for Rachel. Well, Jacob did. He served seven more years for Rachel. And the Bible says that when Laban gave him Leah, he gave a handmaid to go with her, and that was Zilpah. And then when he gave him Rachel, he gave a handmaid to go with her, and her name was Bilhah. Now, those people cause trouble later, as we'll find out. And one to remember is Bilhah. And as we study through Genesis, which we're doing, then Later, we'll find out that Bilhah comes into the story because the first son that we'll find out about is Reuben. Now, Bilhah is a good bit older than Reuben, of course, because when he's born, uh, Bilhah is the handmaid or like a concubine to uh, Jacob. But then uh, Reuben, that firstborn, ends up having a relationship with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, and when when uh, Jacob comes to his deathbed close to the end, he starts telling about his sons, and he says, Reuben, you're unstable as water because you went up to my couch. And uh, so a lot of problems in this home, and they develop as time goes on. But then they, the Lord tells us about 
what happened. Rachel was loved more than Leah, but God saw that, and God said, I'm going to bless Leah. And so the Bible says in chapter 29, verse 32, that Leah conceived the firstborn son, and his name was Reuben. Chapter 29, verse 33, she says she had another son. His name was Simeon. Chapter 29, verse 34, she had another son. His name was Levi. And then verse 35, she had Judah. Now, there's an interesting thing to note there. And that is sometimes people say, well, Rachel, you know, it wasn't right, and it wasn't right. But Rachel should have been the, was the favored one for God as well. Well, maybe not. Because to, who, to which wife did God give those very significant names or men that were born to her? Which wife uh, bear the one who is to be the priest? It was Leah, the tribe of Levi. Which one bear the one who is to be the king, the kingly tribe, and through whom the Messiah Jesus would come? It wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. And so in chapter 29, she already has four sons. And then the Bible begins to tell some other of the details of this home. In chapter 30, we find that Rachel's handmaid was, uh, was uh, Bilhah. Rachel was jealous because she wasn't having any children. So she says to Jacob, I'm going to give you Bilhah, my handmaid, and she will have children, and since she's my property... But what she has, the child she has, actually belongs to me. And so that happened. Bilhah became a concubine, so to speak, of Jacob. And Dan was born. And then it says in chapter 30, verses 7 to 8, that the next one, Naphtali, was born of Bilhah. So by this time, there's already six boys born. Well, at this time, Leah gets jealous, and she has a handmaid by the name of Zilpah, and she gave her to Jacob, and two other sons were born, and that was Gad and Asher, chapter 30, verses 9 through 13, lists those names. So now you have eight boys that are born to this family, and Rachel still doesn't have a child. Well, the Bible says in chapter 30, verse 14, that Reuben was a little boy by, probably by this time. Some say he was probably about seven years old, somewhere around there. And Reuben went out, and, and he was searching for things, and he found a plant that his mom really liked. He didn't know why she liked it, but he found a plant that mom had talked about, and he found some of them that were called mandrakes. Well, back in those times, mandrakes were thought, to, were thought to help in fertility. And so Leah hadn't had a child for a while, and so she said, uh, he came back, and he said, Mommy, I found some mandrakes. And she got all excited about those mandrakes. And then Rachel found out that Leah's son had brought her mandrakes. And Rachel comes to Leah and says, will you give me some of your son's mandrakes? And she says, why should I give you my son's mandrakes? I mean, you've taken my husband from me. He loves you more than me and, and all of this. And she says, I will buy them from you. And I will let you go in to Jacob tonight if you will give me some mandrakes. So, I mean, it's a terrible story. So they, they did that. And Jacob goes into Leah that night, and sure enough, Leah uh, bears a son. And so 
he gives her the mandrakes, and, and uh, she, when Leah goes to uh, Jacob, she says this, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Well, that's an awful thing to say, but that's exactly what happened. And so Leah gave birth, the Bible says in verse 17 to 18, of Issachar. And then Leah conceived again and bare a son, Zebulun. And then Leah bare a daughter, her name was Dinah. Now, the Bible tells us that Jacob had other daughters, but this is the only one mentioned by name, probably because Dinah is going to be part of the story later that we'll read about. And then the Bible says that God finally remembered Rachel, and he opened up her womb. You see, God was the one who kept Rachel from having children. And he opened her womb and caused her to conceive, and she bore a son. His name was Joseph. Now, we all know about Joseph, and we'll... We'll study about him later. But you read this story and you say, wow, what a dysfunctional family. (laughs) Talk about a dysfunctional family. You got this man and he has two wives and they have have handmaids and they become his concubines and and there's all this jealousy going on and, and all this. Can we learn anything from a story like this? Well, tonight today I'd like to share with you some lessons I believe we can learn from this story. The first one is this, God's word is the inspired word of God, and all of it is important. You know, you read a sordid story like this, and you say, well, is there importance in this story? The Bible tells us this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, given by inspiration of God, or Greek terms that could be translated, all scripture is God-breathed. God breathed. I've made a point before, and I hope you understand this and realize it. It, Like Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wasn't inspired. What he wrote was inspired. Jeremiah was moved along by the Holy Spirit, but what he wrote was the breath of God. It was God breathed. And so inspiration doesn't apply to the writer. It applies to what he wrote. He was moved along by the Spirit of God, the Scripture says, and what he wrote was the breath of God. And what we have today in your hands is the Bible. It's the breath of God. It's the Word of God. And so God gave us his Word. And he says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God says, I gave you the Bible for a reason. It's profitable for you. All of it is profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means every part is important. The names are important. The genealogies are important. The so-called insignificant details are important. The sordid stories like we just read are important. Some have gone to great lengths in, in this passage to talk about Joseph's son, or Jacob's sons. And Jacob's sons have names that are assigned to them, and the names have significance. And some have taken these names and showed how significant those names are to the children of Israel and the history of Israel. Some have taken the circumstances of these names, how they were given. The mother gave this name because, and it describes it. All of these give a reason why she gave that name. Some have looked at those names in detail and found out a pattern of the history of the nation of Israel all through those, through those names as 
each name emphasizing some other stage in the Israel's life. Very interesting. And I'm not going to take time this morning to explain all that, which I don't understand at all anyway. But it should not surprise us that much of the Scripture has significance, or all the Scripture has significance, and I believe some of the significance will never be known by us until we get to heaven. Throughout heaven, what are we going to do? One thing we're going to do is, try, is understand the Word of God. You remember when Jesus talked to the disciples on the road to, to Emmaus? And he opened the Scripture and told how the Scripture told of him in the Old Testament. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he did that? Can you imagine throughout eternity the Lord saying, I want you to, I want you to remember a passage I wrote. And I want to tell you something that was intended there. It's sort of behind the scenes, and you probably never picked it up, but here's what it is. And it won't be interesting if God says, now let me tell you about the 12 tribes of Israel. Let me tell you the significance of their names and why they were named that. God knows all of those things. Every part of the Word of God is significant. We do not have to understand it all to appreciate it all. Therefore, we as Christians should never take the position that I've heard a lot of people say, and I don't have anybody in mind here, but I've heard a lot of people say this. I do not read my Bible through because I, I just can't get past all those names and genealogies and all that boring stuff. Now, let me tell you something. The one who gave us this book is God. He loves us, and he has a reason for it. And he gave us this, this book because he said it was for our instruction, and it was for righteousness. Every part of this book is important. And I would rather be somebody who finally goes to heaven and says to the Lord, Lord, I read your book several times, than somebody who goes to heaven and there you're on the streets of gold and all the wonders and we see Jesus with the print of nails in his hands and his feet and the place in his side and know that we wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. And he wrote us a letter. He wrote us a book and we never read it. I wouldn't want to be that person. I encourage you to read the word of God. So a lesson we learn from this passage is that God's word is inspired and it's important. Another lesson we learn is this. God is the God of grace. You know, you read this story and you wonder, why would God use Jacob? He had four wives. That's not right. No, it's not right. Why would God use Jacob? Well, God is the God of grace. That's why. Why would God use Jacob to be the father of the Jewish nation through whom the the promised one, the Messiah, would come, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would God use Jacob? And again, the answer is God is is a God who's so good, he's so merciful, and he's so gracious that he uses fallible people to do his work. Fallible people to do his work. That includes me and you. Why do I stand here to preach today? Because God uses fallible people. It's not because I'm that good or anything like that. God chose me to do this because of his grace. I don't deserve it. God's gracious God. And aren't you glad he is? If God wasn't gracious, you wouldn't be saved. You don't deserve to go to heaven. All of you deserve to go to hell, and me too. But God is gracious, and he allows us to go to heaven when we trust what he did for us on the cross of Calvary. We trust him and not us. He's a gracious God. God is so good. And then there's another reason, another lesson we can learn from this book, from these passages. And that is 
God's plan for marriage of one man and one woman is right, and it's also good. God's plan for marriage, one man and one woman, is right, and it's also good. Genesis 2, verse 24 says this, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. God says, one man, one woman, that's my plan. Also, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. One man, one woman. In this passage, God shows us that polygamy is bad. I mean, just look at it. Polygamy produced envy, jealousy, hatred, discord, and the results seen in the sons is terrible. And the sons brought forth things that, like we mentioned, uh, Reuben had a relationship with his dad's, one of his dad's wives. I mean, how sick. And yet all that came out of this dysfunctional family, and uh, God's just showing to us, look, I give men free will, and they make choices, but when they make this choice, I just want to want you to see what happens. And so God gives us a story to teach us. Let's stay away from that. And let's remember, God's plan is still the best. One man, one woman. And then there's another lesson. That lesson is, God is sovereign and he rules. Let me say that again. God is sovereign and he rules. His purpose will be accomplished regardless what man does. God has a will to accomplish and he will accomplish it. And uh, regardless of what man does, God will not be thwarted. His plan will not be thwarted. Man's failures, failures will not keep God from accomplishing what he wants to do. God's too great. God gives up men free will, and that's true. We do have free will. I believe that we should agree that every bad man has a free will. But God is sovereign. But God is greater than sin, and when men make wrong choices, God is not limited by that. He's not thwarted by that. He's not controlled by that. His will is going to be done, and if people make wrong choices, they will pay for that, but God's will will be done. And that's what we find here in this passage. Jacob made wrong choices. Leah made wrong choices. Rachel made wrong choices. But God's will was done. In the end, in Daniel chapter 2, we find some verses I think that are helpful. In verse 20, it says this Daniel was placed, faced with a a dream he needed to uh, interpret. He said this Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth in him. God is in charge. He sets up kings and he takes them down. Now, I don't like the political situation in the United States, but I do know this, God's still in charge. And when God takes somebody down, he sets somebody up, it doesn't mean the person is good. God has a purpose and a plan. He knows what he's doing, and God is going to win. We know that's true. Also, we find in Jeremiah chapter 9, 
I want to read that passage. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 says this, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And the Lord is saying, Look, I'm in charge, and don't you be all go- think you're great because you have come up with wisdom that's different than mine, and you contradict the word of God, and you think you're getting by with it. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord says, I still delight in, in judgment, in righteousness, and I'm going to see that things turn out right. In your bulletin this morning, in the, in the head of the bulletin, I put a verse, and that's in Proverbs Let's see if I, Proverbs 20, verse 21, verse 30. And by the way, if I put a verse in the bulletin, it always has a meaning, usually in relation to the message. It says this, there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. What's that say? There is no wisdom, understanding, or counsel against the Lord. And that is, you will never be successful if you rise up against the Lord. It'll never stand. And our nation right now is in rebellion against God. They've rejected God's plan for marriage. They've rejected God's plan for everything. I mean, they're calling good evil and evil good. They're calling boys girls and girls boys. I mean, they're so messed up. And they might look like they're getting by with it, but the Lord says this, no counsel will stand against the Lord. God is sovereign. God is in control. God works all things together for good to those that love him. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28. And the Lord says he will work things together for good to those that love him. And if you know the Lord as your Savior, and you come up with circumstances, maybe caused by other people, and things seem like it's going to overcome you, remember this, God is greater than the evil, and God can work things together for his people. God promised that. There's no greater example than that than, the, than Job. Job, you remember, went through a lot of problems. He was there one day, and he found out that in one day, all of his cattle were gone. In one day, his barns were gone. In one day, all of his children were gone. He lost everything. And what did Job say at the end of it all? Because he understood that God was in charge. He says this, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you remember when his wife came and said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Job still stood up for the Lord, and in nothing he said did he curse God or dishonor God with his lips. He trusted the Lord. God works things together for good because he is sovereign and he rules. For the trusting Christian, I like this quote by Dr. Wearsby, and he said this, For the trusting Christian, circumstances in life are not accidents. They are appointments. Circumstances in life are not accidents. They are appointments. And then we have one final lesson I'd like to draw this morning from this passage, and that is this. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. 
Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. In this passage, the deceiver meets a deceiver. We see this often in Scripture, that when a person sows something, he reaps something. Back in Pharaoh's day, you remember when the children of Israel, before they, they were a nation, Pharaoh decided to move against the children of Israel and to kill all the baby boys. And how was he going to kill them? By drowning them in the river. How did Pharaoh's life end? We'll find it. You won't see this in the movie, you know, that speaks about it, but it's in the Bible. And that is Pharaoh and his horse were drowned in the Red Sea. He said, drown all the babies. And God says, all right, I'll drown you. And God did. Adonai Bezek, a king that's mentioned in the book of Judges. He was a king that said, and he said this himself when it happened to him. He said, through the years, I have conquered 70 kings. And for all those 70 kings, I cut off their thumbs and I cut off their great toes. And Israel conquered him, and guess what happened? They cut off his his thumbs and his great toes. What you sow, you're going to reap. Ahab caused Naboth to die. Remember, Jezebel was behind it, but Ahab was party to it. He caused Naboth, who had the vineyard, to die. And when he was killed, the Bible says the blood ran out and the dogs came and licked his blood. The prophet Elijah said this to Ahab. As the dogs licked Naboth's blood, so the dogs will lick your blood. And what happened? Ahab in a battle was wounded and he died in his chariot. And when they were washing the chariot out, there was blood all over and the dogs came and licked his blood. And you remember Elijah said something else too in relation to dogs. And he said, your wife Jezebel... She will be eaten by the dogs at the wall of Jezreel. Sure enough, it happened. You remember Jehu came and Jezebel was up there in the window and he said, throw her down. And they threw her down and it was such a height that she she hit the pavement and blood burst out on the horses and on the walls and everything. And then they trampled her to death. And then they went in and ate a meal. And he said, well, look, she's a king's daughter. We should bury her. And they went out to bury her, and they, guess what? They found that her skull was there, her hands were there, her feet was there, but all the rest of it was eaten by the dogs. It's like the dogs saying, we don't want anything to do with that skull that brought up all those wicked ideas. We won't want anything to do with those hands that, that brought it to pass and those feet that, that were running to shed blood. We don't want anything to do with that, but they ate the rest of her body. What you, what you sow, you're going to reap. You remember Haman? Haman in the book of, of Esther? He got so disgusted with Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to worship him and to give reverence to him. And so he built a gallows 50 cubits high to hang Mordecai on. And what happened? He was hanged on Mordecai's gallows. Remember Saul of Tarsus? He held, he was, became Paul. He held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. And then in Lystra, guess what happened to Paul? Even though he was a servant of God, what you sow, you're going to reap. The Bible says they stoned Paul and left him for dead. He didn't die, but they stoned him at Lystra. 
And then we come to Jacob, the man of our story today. Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, and then Jacob was deceived by his father-in-law, Laban. Isaac thought Jacob was Esau, and Jacob thought Leah was Rachel. Deception. Jacob deceived Isaac by a goat's skin and his, on his neck and on his hands, and then later Jacob's sons deceived him with Joseph's coat that they dipped in goat's blood. What you sow, you're going to reap. Jacob deceived Isaac in regards to his favorite son Esau. And he was deceived later by his son in regards to his favorite son, Joseph. You see, what you sow, is going, you're going to reap. I hope we all learn from the lessons we found in these chapters. First of all, God's word is inspired and important. Are you reading it? Are you learning from it? Secondly, God is a God of grace who wants to use you. Are you allowing him to use you? Or are you saying, oh, I can't be used. This happened. This happened in my life. I can't be used. God is a God of grace and he can use you. God is sovereign and he rules. History, when, when all is seen, is, not, is really his story. God's moving in history. So it's his story. So don't fight against God because I guarantee you, you will not win. You will lose. You will lose. We hope to reap or we do reap what we sow. But be sure you sow right because you're going to reap what you sow. If you want right results, you must sow right. Galatians 6 says, For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life, life everlasting. So that means you want to reap love. Guess what you sow? You sow love. You want to reap kindness for people to be kind to you? Then you be kind to people. If you want long-suffering people to be bear with you and give you a chance, then be long-suffering yourself. If you want to, sympathy when something happens to you, then you better be sympathetic. If you want people to forgive you because you messed up, then you better forgive because you will reap what you sow. You see, God loves you, and he wants you to reap good fruit. But I remind you, the devil hates you, and he wants you to reap bad fruit. The question is, Who are you following? The one who loves you or the one who hates you? Let's pray. Father, thank you today for allowing us to see these lessons from this story. Lord, it's an unpleasant story in so many ways, and yet you have things for us to learn. And I just pray that we might learn these lessons well. And Lord, I know that you're the God of the harvest. And you can change harvest. You've done it in the past. But the general rule is, if you sow it, you're going to reap it. So, Lord, I pray that we might be mindful of that and that every day we would sow the right seed. We can't do anything about the seed we've already sown, but we can do something about the future. And I pray that we might do what's right. We ask in Jesus' name.